0: Welcome to the Ice to Dartmouth podcast, this is Franklin Jacoby. Sometimes scientific beliefs seem to come into conflict with other, particularly religious beliefs. This can lead to a skepticism about science. It is very easy and tempting for the scientifically minded amongst us to dismiss science skeptics as irrational. And yet I'm not sure we really understand very well the complex relationship between religion and science as perceived by society. Further complicating our understanding is the fact that there are as many different perceptions of science as there are peoples. Who is skeptical? What are they skeptical about, specifically, and why? It's hard for me to imagine more important questions at this particular moment in time. Dr. Salman Hamid is an astronomer by training, but he has also become interested in how Muslim communities perceive science and its relationship to religion. He has explored this topic all over the world, and for this episode, we are going to learn a bit more about how to study perceptions of science and what he has learned so far. Salman is Charles Taylor Chair and Associate Professor of Integrated Science and Humanities in the School of Cognitive Science at Hampshire College. He is also the Director of Center for the Study of Science in Muslim Societies. So you got your PhD in astronomy. How did you go from, and I, you still do astronomy, I take it. How did you go, though, from doing uh, astronomy to looking at public perceptions of science in particular um, amongst Muslim communities, different Muslim
1: communities. Well, oh, thank you. Oh, well, I, I should mention that. Uh, so my astronomy is also not overlapping with history and philosophy questions. I mean, you can have sort of like those overlapping questions, but uh, my astronomy was a pretty sort of like mainstream. I looked at how stars form in galaxies and I used a lot of different Telescopes in Chile, in Hawaii, and I was in New Mexico, so over there, Arizona, and that was about star formation debates over spiral galaxies. Uh, how do they form stars? And asking questions about that. So I think directly, it has it had no correlation with where my work has ended up with. Uh, but I think. Well, first of all, that tells you that you never know where life is going to take you. So, you know, all kinds of courses, all kinds of experiences are important. But I think my interest in these questions was from twofold. One, uh, I grew up in Pakistan, which is a very religious society. And I got interested in astronomy actually because of Carl Sagan, I watched his Cosmos and after the first episode, I was like, whoa, I want to become an astronomer. And so, of course, like, you know, that was I was in ninth grade. It took whatever 16, 17 years after that to actually get the PhD. And and of course, that journey is long and it takes you through various paths in terms of thinking about questions. And I came to the US from an undergraduate and my graduate school and I got my PhD over there. So in the back of my mind, that question has always been there. Now I'm in a different cultural context, both in terms of uh, disciplines. I never thought I would be an astronomer and also more sort of like as a culturally, I was in the US and I was in New Mexico. I was in Las Cruces. Which brings me to the second part of it because I was a teaching assistant to a new class that was developed over there, which was called Revolutionary Ideas in Science. It was taught by one of my favorite professors over there. I was the TA. And it dealt with how scientific revolutions or ideas that overturn ideas happen, right? And it was in the astronomy department, but it was sort of like bringing in history of science and things like that. And uh, I, some of the ideas I was, introduced to for the first time, I did not know much about anti-evolution movements, creationism in the US and fundamentalist movements, uh, age of the earth debates, but also that course actually dealt also with unanswered sort of like things that we are still dealing with, uh, dinosaur extinctions, for example. So it was a much more of a science course, but that got me interested in that in particular, when we talked about search for life in the universe, lot of the students that were pretty I would consider in terms of course level very smart students they also believed in flying saucers (laughs) to me that was to me that was interesting because again in my naive understanding and again so you can think about I'm as far away from social sciences when I'm in grad school in physics and astronomy my undergraduate is in physics and astronomy so I'm coming from there and in that, so a very naive assumption is that, well, I mean, why would you believe in UFOs? I mean, you know, there's no evidence for that. I mean, but it was very clear that being smart, being sort of like, you know, intelligent had no correlation with whether you would believe in flying saucers or not. And to me, that was fascinating. To me that I really, I, I, so I would actually talk to these students because I'll be like, okay, so tell me why, what makes you believe that? Because I know you are one of the smartest kids in the class. So I think that's how I started getting into it. And uh, that led me to my postdoc, which was uh, here in five college astronomy department and at Smith college, which uh, was about, uh, I had to develop a course called astronomy and public policy. So as you can see, my trajectory started to move slowly in that direction. And ultimately by the time my postdoc was over, I was like, oh, I love this stuff. And so I, uh, I was lucky to get a, a position at Hampshire College, which was uh, uh, integrated science and humanities. And it was a chaired position, which gave me the freedom to explore uh, any areas of science, as long as it connects with humanities or social sciences. And I had uh, sort of like the freedom to do that. And I ended up working more on Muslim societies because of those two connections of how people think about these things and what factors determine how they think about it. Sorry for a very long answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, an excellent answer. It's curious that you you came from Pakistan, which you described as a very religious country. And yet we're having these sorts of experiences with students who um, had, I guess you might call them non-scientific beliefs once you came to the US. It must've been quite a culture shock if that's the Uh, way to describe
1: it. Right, I mean, to me, that was one of the most fascinating aspects. Uh, Again, looking back at it. And uh, for my undergrad, I was at Stony Brook uh, in New York and you are much more isolated. You are sort of like, you know, okay, I'm in the physics department, astronomy department, but I think because I had to TA a class that exposed me to a broader audience that may not be pure coming from the science background. And yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, if I was being outside of my body and out of body experience, uh, that would have been fascinating to think. I was defending evolution to students who are in the US, even though I'm coming from Pakistan. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? This doesn't make any sense, right? And so, so absolutely, I mean, I think uh, I think it was uh, it was a weird experience. But once I started to learn more about it, then it didn't seem as strange. And now I find it, uh, in fact, uh, it's a pretty rich area from a scholarly per- perspective in terms of how anti-evolution movements, for example, have developed, or for that matter, how flying saucers and UFOs are a, in the very specific. American mythos, American culture, and how that connects with the rest of the world. Uh, I think some of these things, both flying saucers and creationism is a very American phenomenon. And so, uh, so I think, so I, I find i still have those connections and, uh, and, and, and I still find them very uh, interesting. It must be very
0: challenging to study these sorts of things, and so you are looking at um, other c- cultures from around the world, very different countries, very different, well, languages and practices. How how do you go about doing that?
1: Right. So, so a lot of my work deals with how Muslim societies or Muslims in different societies think about biological evolution, uh, and I would rather place it in the context that it's not about evolution. In fact, uh, it's about more about perceptions of science, but I use biological evolution as a probe to look at the diversity of views. And one of the things, and again, I'm coming, my own views have dramatically altered about my this whole, this particular subject as well over the last 20 years that I've been working on. And one of the big things that scholars in anthropology or in Islamic studies had always been pointing out that one of the big problems that come in is when people treat Islam as a monolithic entity or as Muslims as monolithic entity, that when we talk about uh, creationism, for example, people will have all these various fine points that within even the Protestants. Sort of like, you know, that, oh, you are talking about Seventh-day adventist or you are talking about, oh, Southern Baptist Like, you know, but what do Muslims think? Or what does Islam say? Right. So I think one of the th- ways to go about thinking about that was uh, when I started working on it uh, about roughly around 15, 14, 15 years ago, working on thinking about this topic, I was also coming from a much generalized depiction of these things, thinking that, well, I think most Muslims also reject evolution. And one of the reasons why that was coming in was because when you hear these type of things in newspaper stories, in particular, for example, in Europe, now that's a whole other fascinating angle that these rejection of evolution by Muslims actually mostly get highlighted in Europe, of course, not in the US, right? I mean, so that's interesting. Uh, But those were the stories that were out and very limited studies that were there. Uh, In fact, I uh, I actually gathered some of the data back in 2008 and published that. And uh, and that data itself had a problem, but we published it because there was no information available at that time, where there was a lot more information about evolution acceptance in other countries. And we, it kind of reinforced this idea that most Muslims ex- reject evolution, that was reinforced by the popular culture, that reinforced by the general perception that Muslims are today not pro-science. But that was the whole point that actually you go and interview people. So instead of doing a written, a written surveys, because we don't know then what people are saying, we decided to do oral interviews with medical doctors and medical students in several countries, Turkey, Pakistan, Malaysia, uh, and then some Pakistanis in England, Pakistanis in the US. And these are physicians and medical students.
0: So highly educated uh, part of the community.
1: Right. And your language question is fascinating because I think this was one of the big reasons why we did medical doctors, because if you go with translations, and then you open up a different Pandora's box because then you figure out if you are translating, uh, just, uh, and we had some pilot studies, uh, just the word ancestors. Are you related, are you, do we have a common ancestor? Well, ancestor can mean different things in different languages. So for example, it's like, oh yeah, my grandfather. Well, what about were my grandfather, right? Versus the way ancestor is used. The same thing, the way people use evolution. Okay, so that was one way and that had the disadvantages, but we are talking in local languages. If we go in English, the problem was, okay, are we just going and missing out? There may be language, linguistic problems and understanding English. So what people are responding to. uh, And also we were aware of, uh, which was also came out of our pilot study, who is doing the interview? it actually made a, made a big uh, difference. And if I can give you an anecdote, one of my students who was working with me, who I, in fact, designed, uh, helped design the survey questions, uh, he was a uh, white American, like, you know, and very nice guy, very sort of like, you know, and, uh, and I remember going uh, for a pilot study, we went to interview some um, physicians in uh, Michigan, Muslim physicians in Michigan. And I remember that he's just sitting there passively. He's not even asking questions. I'm the one who's asking questions, right? And I could see oftentimes the physical position of the interviewees changing and like, you know, and they would start talking, well, you know, we believe this, but they, pointing to my student, for example. And to me, that was, again, I mean, these are all data points, right? I mean, for me, this was fascinating because I did not, and for these interviews, I did not give any position, whether I accept evolution, I don't accept evolution. What is my position? I was not and my question. Our questions were tried to be as neutral as possible. What do you think about it? And yet just the presence of a student or white student over there changed the dynamic of the interview. And so, when we looked at these different countries aspect we decided that it would be perhaps one way to do that would be just to have one person interviewing and so whatever the variations are whatever the factors are you can take that into account so i actually interviewed every place i went and so that was one variable i was like okay well how do i get perceived you can figure it out but at least it's not variations in terms of people interviewing and how they are asking questions and so on and so forth. Uh, but, and and that, and that was another reason why I had to do it in English. And so even when in Pakistan, which I speak the local language in Urdu, I still did it in English, even though we would have conversation before or after in Urdu. But the interview was in English because we wanted to stay as uh, sort of like, you know consistent as possible. Nevertheless, I mean, this is, an oral study, oral interviews, uh, Sure enough. I mean, there are, you take it with all kinds of uh, grain of salt as you can, like, you know, and those are variations, but that is not what was surprising about our results, so.
0: Do you want to, well, do you want
1: to give the spoiler and tell us what was surprising (laughs) about your results? Well, well, so, yeah, so that that, that was our leading leading answer, so. uh, so if somebody asks me today, and this is some of the work that I did while I was uh, at Dartmouth as well. Well, what do Muslims think about evolution? Or what is Islam's position on evolution? And the, and, and because I work in this field, these, this question is asked of me, like, you know. Um, and my answer is, I don't know. And right? I mean, I, I was like, well, it depends upon who you are asking. It depends upon in what context you are asking. There are all these different responses. There is no singular response. Now, on the one hand, this is not surprising because, right, why would we consider a billion people to have a single position? (laughs) Yet. From all over the world. From all over the world, right? Yeah. And yet, that's what we do, right? I mean, that's the narrative. Muslims believe that. Islam believes that, right? And, and, And not to mention that both our current president and our previous presidents have made the same mistakes, even well-meaning people also. Say when they try to say, for example, even talk about sort of like, oh, Islam is actually um, quite sympathetic to this. I don't know what that means. You, You are still generalizing it. The question, the issues that come in is not, or the problem that gets created is not what you are saying, what value you are attaching to, good or bad, It's about treating a whole billion people as monolithic because they are a little bit different.
0: And whose narrative is that? Is that principally an American narrative or an English-speaking world narrative? Or whose narrative is that, that you've got a billion Muslims who all are the same?
1: I think that's a fascinating question. and, And I would answer to that in the way that actually it's certainly American narrative. It's also in Europe. It's also in Muslim countries, in different Muslim societies as well. And why is it there? I mean, some of it would have to go with the larger post-colonial, colonial narratives that have existed. So there are these historical narratives that got established and there were responses to that, right? So 19th century, a lot of Muslim narratives in Muslim societies though, were responding to colonial narratives. They also created this mythology So well, for example, well, there was this Muslim past, and so there is a Muslim present. Uh, there is a wonderful book, uh, w- which is uh, the idea of the Muslim world, which actually traces it. That came out, I think, two or three years ago. Which traces this that this idea is actually a nineteenth-century idea that there is a Muslim world. Before that, there was no such thing as a Muslim world, but. That particular idea, and that was an interaction between colonial interests that were driving, well, here is a swath that justifies colonialism, for example. It doesn't matter whether they are in different places or not. And then in response, well, there is a unified opposition to it because there are Muslims. So, so there is a complex historical reasons as well, but all of these are way beyond what the actual... Data and what the actual reality is. So let me give you an example. Of course, we are more familiar with the American examples. But when I was interviewing in Turkey, a lot of the people would speak for all of Muslims over there. They say, oh, you know, no. So some people would say, uh, which was fascinating to me because, again, as I said, I am who I am, right? So whether people considered me as an insider or as an outsider, it wasn't in my control, nor did I. Of object to it or reject it, right? So if somebody says, Well, you know, we all reject evolution, okay. I was like, okay, so why would you do that, right? Like you know, so sometimes and in Turkey, I remember talking to people and they would oftentimes say, well, Of course, no Muslim accept evolution. Similar thing in some cases in Pakistan, some cases in Malaysia. So so that again, this perception of a monolithic entity can be in many different places, but not everybody does that. Again, if I say that everybody treats that as monolithic entity, I think I would be making the same mistake of treating everybody the same. Nevertheless, that exists. And what was interesting for our results is like, you know, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of positions on evolution. People use Islam to reject evolution. People also use Islam to accept evolution because they say, well, evolution was in the Quran or, or other things, but so that also happens. It depends upon where you are and what dominant narratives are there. So for example, in Turkey, the issue of evolution is also a political issue. It actually straddles the line between the secularists and Islamists. And part of the reason is because part of the secularists actually used that previously to show that a rejection of evolution means you are anti-science and you are backwards. That was the narrative that was used before. And then a lot of the Islamists and Iran, of course, yes, that is how it differentiates us with the secularists. We do reject evolution. And that's because evolution is an atheistic philosophy or a materialistic philosophy and so on and so forth. So in Turkey, what we found was that there was a, I mean, again, with the smaller sample that we had, there was a bigger shift and that aligned a little bit. Again, we could not, we did not ask about the political affiliations, but we did have other kinds of questions, for example, their own religiosity, how many times they prayed and things like that. And that kind of straddled, gave us a relationship to that. In Malaysia, we had about 30 people that we interviewed. With the exception of one, everybody rejected human evolution. And most of them also accepted evolution. And remember, these are the educated elites.
0: And these are all all
1: physicians. Yes, physicians and medical students. Now, why was that the case? Well, we suspect. So this is something, again, we cannot because this is not a huge study. But what we discovered was that, I mean, we would start the interview with, well, what do you know about biological evolution? Or what do you know about evolution? And in other places, Turkey or in Pakistan or other places, people would respond by usually by thinking about what they know about the stuff that they learned either in 9th, 10th grade or in medical school. In Malaysia, a lot of the responses started by saying, well, it is against Islam. So this was interesting because we didn't ask whether, what is the position with Islam is, but for them, when they heard evolution, their first response was that it is against Islam. So what we suspect what's going on is that in Malaysia, the question of evolution in, through interesting means, and that is, needs to be further unpacked. It has become a definition of being a Muslim that you reject evolution, In Pakistan, on the other hand, when we asked questions, there were all kinds of responses and including about whether you accept evolution or not. It was all over the map. And one of the reasons why we suspect that is the case is because evolution never became a flashpoint either from a religious context or from a political context. And so people have all these various responses. They still think uh, either, like you know. So for example, even people who, when we interview, interviewed about forty-five students and medical students and medical doctors in Pakistan, most of them accepted evolution by far, majority. Uh, about half of them, or uh, two-thirds, uh, one-third, more than one-third, also accepted human evolution. But when we ask them, do you think? Other doctors in Pakistan accept evolution. I said no. So we are finding that actually most of them accept evolution. They are there. They themselves accept evolution, but they also think that nobody else accepts it. <laughs> How curious. So, so there is this aspect, interesting aspect in there, and we think that that has very particular historical elements in there because some of the people whose philosophies or ideologies became crucial in the formation of Pakistan. Uh, there was one person who was Sayyid Ahmad Khan, who was a 19th century uh, reformer, you can say. Uh, he is considered as, I mean, he really, uh, he died in, uh, in late 19, 1899, uh, 1897, sorry. And, but his uh, ideas became the foundations of what led to the creation of Pakistan he was a fascinating uh, guy in the first place. And he wrote about evolution in the early 1890s. And he was like, yeah, evolution is totally fine. Now, his justifications were interesting because he was very pro-British. He thought British are here to stay. And so Muslims should cooperate with the British as well. And he was really an education reformer. He wanted people to learn modern education. For him, evolution was a modern idea. Muslims should accept it, but he, he was never trained either as, neither as a theologian, although he was, came from a very religious background uh, and nor was he a scientist, but he actually was uh, very uh, up-to-date in terms of popular aspects. He generated, started magazines at the time, Science Society, and also one of the most influential educational institutes that led to the movement for Pakistan, right? So that was Aligarh University or uh, Mohammedan Anglo-Oriental University. Now, him, and I should also mention one interesting thing that that I find fascinating, in 1848, he wrote a tract that earth doesn't move. He believes in a stationary earth in 1848. But soon after, he started to change and he says like, no, modern education should be go there and so on and so forth. And by 1890s, he's talking about evolution, totally compatible with Islam, totally works. And he is talking about that. Now, a lot of his philosophies did not make it into the general ethos of his university. His university was very important in the Pakistan movement, but more from a nationalistic perspective. But a lot of his ideas were considered too anti-Islam or too uh, sort of like you know controversial, and evolution kind of got in the middle, but it stayed in the ether. And then later on, other people as well in the early 20th century, a lot of Muslim thinkers in India, even when they were unhappy with evolution, they accept. They said, "Well, evolution is okay." So, for example. Well, like sort of like the founder poet of Pakistan's idea, Iqbal, who's a philosopher as well. He was, he didn't like evolution, but he was like, well, I mean, you know, I don't like it from a spiritual perspective and it's too bad that evolution is there. But he didn't <laughs> say that evolution is wrong. I mean, he was really into Hegel and, the, uh, and and Nietzsche. I mean, he was critic of Nietzsche to a certain degree, but Hegel, and so, he was thinking about these things and evolution shows up a brief bit and he just, but he doesn't go after that. And I think that is perhaps one of the reasons why in Pakistan, it never became a rallying cry and evolution is included in textbooks. So up until recently, it's been in the textbooks of all provincial boards. there are four provinces over there. But the way it's included is that the chapter on evolution in ninth grade and in uh, high school, uh, 11th and 12th grade biology textbooks, either it would have a couple of pages on the Islamic concept of evolution, which would justify evolution. And so they would say, they would spend a couple of pages, Quranic verses, and they would say, as now we can see, There is no clash between evolution and Islam. Now let's look at the scientific concept. And they would never explicitly reject human evolution, but human evolution would never be mentioned, even though the next chapter is going to be on homology or other things that would have, of course that would have connections to it, but they wouldn't explicitly say that we are talking about human evolution. But evolution, explicitly it would mention that evolution is a fact of science. So it's a, so that's what makes it um interesting and um uh, and so yeah so it's
0: curious you you mentioned a, a rallying cry in some ways it sounds like it's not so much about um you know the particular theory of evolution say but it sounds like it's almost uh, religious and political and perhaps the distinction between religion and politics is is not very strong there. Um, I don't know if that was something you felt with, with this work.
1: Right. So, so the question is what evolution stands for. So that's another aspect that we were finding is that, okay, so if you say, do you accept evolution or not? Well, the listener, what are they hearing when they are hearing the word evolution?
0: Yes, yes.
1: And yes. in some cases, and so that is the reason why we wanted to do the oral interviews, because you can unpack, you can actually understand how people are responding to that question. So for example, for some evolution meant atheism. Now you would say, well, but it has nothing to do with uh, atheism, sure. But as as now I embrace uh, social sciences wholeheartedly from a social science perspective, it doesn't matter what ought to be or what is. The question is that that's how people are responding to So we have to take that seriously, that for some people, when they are asking the question about evolution, well, they are answering the question whether they agree with atheism or not. Or with Darwin and, or whether they think this is a Western ideology being superimposed. Okay, and you say, but what does that have to do with evolution? That's not the point. The point is when people are responding to those things, there are all these different interpretations of the word evolution, including for some people, evolution means just human evolution and they reject it. And then you keep on asking the question because in our interviews, the way we did this was to go deeper and deeper into evolution. So we would ask, okay, so do you personally accept biological evolution or not? And we use the word biological because of course you also have all the social Darwinism aspect, right? And then we would ask, and they would say yes or no, whatever they would say, but they would we would ask about what about microbial evolution? do you think microbes evolve? And remember they are doctors and medical students and almost everybody's like, oh, of course they do. So whether they answered yes or no, this question would be, because they've seen it. Of course it does.
0: With the antibiotics, then, I suppose, particularly. Exactly.
1: And if they said no, we would actually did ask, like, you know, so how do you do you think that antibiotics work and so on and so forth, but most people actually, then we would ask them about animal evolution. Then we would ask them about human evolution, right? So So there were these things. And then we would also ask like, you know, that, Whatever your position is, but do you think can one accept evolution and also accept Allah or God? And again, so sometimes they would clarify: you mean human evolution or evolution? Okay, so so you can see that there are these all these spectrum in there. Like you know, there is no clear cut boundaries in what people are responding to, and you can see why. Where I started with that, when somebody asked me hey, so what do Muslims think? I don't know. It depends upon where they are. It depends upon what they are responding to, what they think we are asking. Uh, And then, of course, my favorite, which I've uh, cited that in, in my papers as well and other things also, where the response was, well, I accept it scientifically, but I reject it religiously. Or I accept it, uh, and this was in particular to the human evolution que- like, no question, like, you know, or I accept it when I'm in the hospital or I reject it when I go home, right? And these are, to me, those are uh, the most fascinating answers. This was most prevalent in Pakistan. And to me, people were, not everybody grapples with that. Some people have a clear cut answer no, I reject human evolution. Sure, I, I reject evolution. Some people have very clear-cut acceptance also, or accept it as a scientific idea, whatever. But then there are people who are grappling with that. And what I think is going on and how I'm framing it as that is that for some, the definition of the question from, and you are a philosopher, so you would appreciate that from the epistemology perspective, it makes it two different things, meaning to say, if you are in the hospital, the, you are using a scientific epistemology to evaluate, whether it's a except a good idea or not. When you are at home, then evolution, that same word becomes a religious question. And so you may think in a different way, but of course, when I go to the hospital, of course it's true. But when I go home, you're asking, is it true or not? Well, I have my family and I'm thinking about, well, what does it mean? No, it's not true, right? Now, in all of that, the biggest factor is, I think, like, you know, in these kind of things, does it matter? Again, if you had, if you had met me, if you were interviewing me 15 years ago, and by the way, I should mention that I, I have a paper that got published in Science, which I don't cite to anybody. And I'm embarrassed about that paper because that paper was called Bracing for Islamic Creationism. And I also think that part of the reason it got published was because of that kind of a title. And also because I said I had used like, you know, data that was, I think looking back was problematic because of the way questions were asked. It wasn't my data, but th- at that time we didn't know much. So if you ask me today, well, it's a really complex question. And why bracing for Islamic creation? For most people, it doesn't matter whether evolution is true, whether they say evolution is true or not, right? I mean, where does it impact? And that's the problem with having surveys, right? I mean, or, or for that matter, a little bit of interview as well, but for surveys, definitely, that Pew survey, for example, does that for all over the world and they would have a question. They did do that for the Muslim world as well about evolution. So you can imagine I am doing my going through my life when I'm going through uh, whatever now I'm in the hospital or I'm at home I get a phone call I pick up and they say okay so do you accept evolution or not okay. and I'm responding like you know what matters to me most right i mean like, you know so it depends upon where am i what, what am i thinking does it matter what i say right and so for a lot of people in those contexts they respond if if they think, if there is, and, and oftentimes people like Richard Dawkins and others who make it difficult for people to accept evolution and be religious because they would say, oh, you cannot be honest and accept evolution and accept a religious worldview. And so they have heard that narrative and I've got a phone call. I have five minutes. They ask me a question and they say, do you accept evolution or not? And I'm thinking, well, I've heard like, you know, that evolution is linked with atheism, something like that. I don't know much too much about evolution, but I've heard something like that. No, because of course, for me, religion is more important, whatever, like, you know. So I think for even for those doctors who have these two epistemologies, they are being very practical because of course they don't reject what they do. They are professionals. But if I am asking them very specifically about the meaning behind their acceptance, well, that takes you to a different level and many don't think about it. Some do. And that's what was causing these variations. And so so that leads to, apart from what people think about evolution, it also leads you to the variations in how individuals, are willing to live by. As a philosopher, you would appreciate I mean, some people are like, hey, you have to be philosophically consistent. Yeah, I mean, you know.
0: Well, then what but, does consistency consist <laughs> in?
1: Right. But for some people, right. It's not the logical consistency from the epistemology perspective, but perhaps some other consistency which makes it more uh, reasonable that these different answers exist. So, So what I would, Respond to that type of thing. I mean, again, it's not the majority of people give these dualistic answers, but in our Pakistani sample, they were about a third, which was quite a bit. They had all these variations of that, like, you know, it's a very good theory. I think it's true, but I reject it. Okay. And from a religious perspective. I mean, so when they are saying I accept it from science and reject it from religion. So on the one hand, it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. I mean, what does it mean that I accept it scientifically? So what are we value? What, what value are, it's the same person, right? Yes. Yes. So I think of this as people grappling with that and making sense of it. Some, for some people, now other people grapple with it and perhaps come to a conclusion one way or the other that still doesn't negate what they do. Even if they say they reject human evolution, they are in the hospital, they are still working with that. They are still good doctors. That doesn't change the fact. Now, there is a larger philosophical argument. Well, in the long run, is it better to accept evolution and be a good doctor? Well, sure. But just to be a good doctor as long as you accept that there are similarities between human but And again, what does exactly how they are thinking about human evolution? Because you can still argue that God made the body, which is very similar to all the other species, right? So there are all of those uh, <laughs> different things. So uh, what... After doing all of this work, uh, what it has led me to is like, you know, I cannot give a straight answer to this question about what do people think about evolution? Because you have to know more. And I have a lot more respect for fuzzy views on that, because I think that's where the beauty lies. I mean, that's where fascinating stuff is happening.
0: Thanks very much, Salman. I really, uh, really enjoyed that.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. I'm grateful to everyone at ICE at Dartmouth and to Salman Hamid for making this episode possible. we listen listened to The Wonder of Science by Lexin Music. Stay tuned for more episodes or check ice.dartmouth.edu. Thank you.